This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Windsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing so good. This was such a fun one. We had Ginny Hogan on, who's a fantastic comedian. She's got a book coming out, I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. Uh, she's doing her first hour special up at Westside Comedy Club on February 26. She is so funny and she wanted to come on today to talk about dieting and the history of beauty standards, which goes so deep. It was a blast. Yeah, we split the research on this one because I did not realize how much research this would require. It was good. It was fun. I enjoyed that we each got to do a section of riff and make fun of stuff instead. This one was just fantastic. And it was obviously something that we've all had experience with, too. It's nice to talk about our own challenges with dieting and where we are now and how I'm eating terribly, but trying. (laughs) It was a really fun episode. Yeah, let's get into it because this one's a little bit long. Let's go. Ginny Hogan, thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you have so much coming up. You have a book coming out in May, I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. Fantastic title. A perfect name. Yeah. (laughs) You have an hour special coming out February 26th, depending on COVID, right at Westside Comedy Club. Yeah, I'm doing an hour of stand-up, my first hour. That's incredible. That's so exciting. And I've seen, obviously, your work for a while, both on social media, and you did Cabin Fever, the show that I had (laughs) online. So your stand-up has been fantastic. It's so great that you've got a full hour coming coming out now. Yeah, it's been a long wait because of all the COVID stuff, but I'm so happy to be doing stand-up again. Have you been doing a lot of it? I had been until things got worse. I mean, I, I felt like I'd been cautious in the beginning and then I was like, oh, okay, I can do a little bit more. And as soon as I started getting comfortable, it got worse and I've shut it down since then. When in my live show is on hiatus until we feel like it's under control, but I just got back into it enough that I like really got the itch going again and then back to like none of it. So it's fun. It's a good time. Yeah, that's how I felt as well. It's very frustrating. Never a <laughs> better time to be doing live performances than the past few years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know New York was some of the absolute worst for the spread through the comedy community. It's not like it was good anywhere, but like every New York comic I know was like, oh no, we did a show. We all have it now. But Judy, tell us about I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. Yeah. So it's a humor book about 50 essays and they're all short. They're like New Yorker style satire pieces, but the book is loosely structured as like the story of one relationship and it does end with breakups as all relationships do. But it's very, it's like abstract humor. Like it's not following one character throughout, but it is dotted with kind of like short personal essays about my own dating life. The idea kind of came to me like right before the pandemic, I guess. I had written a humor book before and it was about like women at work. And I just felt sort of removed from that as a topic because I haven't had an office job in so long. I actually currently have an office job, but in a completely different field. And it's my first one in a long time. So I wanted to write something that I thought would be universally interesting to many people, mostly to me like kind of no matter what stage of life I was in because books can take a really long time. So I wrote about dating because I thought I would still think it was funny by the time it came out, basically. Oh, that's a really good point, too. 
is that you have to be able to be caring about the subject through, you know, years of editing and rewrites. And it's a lot harder to write passionately if this is no longer even applies to your life. Yes. And there's like an essay in the book where I write about a boyfriend I had at the time. And I definitely wrote about him like, you know, maybe we'll stay together. Maybe we won't. And the book had been finalized and I thought I couldn't change anything. And that was still in it. And we had been broken up for like two months. And then the editor emailed me and she was like, hey, I looked at your social media and it looks like you might be single now. Do you want to change that? And and I was like, I actually really would like to. I just didn't think it was an option. So I changed that. Oh, that's a great editor too. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, she was great. I want to just take off the maybe we will part of the essay. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm so excited to read this again out in May for our audience. Go buy it immediately. I assume it'll be available Amazon everywhere. Nobody's going to bookstores in person anymore, sadly. Yes, but it will hopefully be in bookstores, but yeah, it's available. Hopefully by then. That's right. We're going to be optimistic. In May, we can all go to bookstores safely just to buy Jenny's book. Yeah. Actually, they say that you can't get it if you're buying Jenny's book at a brick and mortar bookstore. (laughs) CDC just came out with that. That was a really specific release. (laughs) It is specific and you want them to be specific so that we all know what the rules are. Yeah. Yeah, that's you're right. That's how we stay safe, guys. Uh, Vague rules are dangerous. <laughs> so specifically brick and mortar bookstores, Jenny's book, only way to stay safe. Yeah, that's <laughs> we're, we're using our podcast for maybe good. I honestly don't know what side of we're on here. Look, of the bad advice podcast gives, at least this one helps Jenny. That's all that matters to me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you had a fun topic for today, too. Fun should be in some air quotes there, because this is a struggle for everyone, myself included. You wanted to talk about dieting. Yes. Yeah. So I think that the week that you asked me what to talk about, I was reading this book called Hooked, and it's about processed food in the U.S. And it's a very, like, rage-inducing book, because it's all about how, like, the processed food industry kind of, like, lied to people to make food less healthy. And one of the parts I thought was, like, the most, like, the darkest, kind of, like, most evil is that, like, basically all of the processed food companies that made this junk food bought like dieting companies to just have like an end-to-end cycle of like sending people back and forth. So like Weight Watchers is like owned by Kraft, I think, or else either Weight Watchers or Slim Plus is owned by Heinz Kraft and the other one is owned by like Coca-Cola. And so it's just like, none of it was ever intended to work. It was just to make sure that people, no matter what stage of like dieting or not dieting they were in, could like buy food from the same companies essentially. And that got me thinking about like the history of Weight Watchers and how it started. And I am really like drawn to stuff like that. It kind of reminded me, I mean, like, yeah, I do feel like stuff like that where it's like one empire sort of like lying to the public and mass reminded me a little bit of like the Sacklers almost. I mean, not maybe comparison, but it's yeah. definitely like they have all the information about how bad all this stuff is. And then they just like don't tell people and they get away with it for like years and years. Right. And I mean, obviously, like we're all familiar with how long it was hidden that tobacco was known to be terrible for you and kept secret. But like sugar was known to be harmful long before it was released, the level of harm it was doing. And also, again, tobacco is discussed so openly. I didn't know there was a time where it wasn't known that sugar was bad for you. But my mother had mentioned that growing up, corn pops were called sugar pops because nobody was worried about it. They changed it once they found out sugar was bad. And they, again, didn't change any of the ingredients, didn't make it any healthier for you, but changed the name to present as though this was suddenly something that was good for you. They changed it to the name of a vegetable too, which I think is just like, (laughs) what a ballsy move. Just like, no, 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 they're not sugar pops. They're corn pops. You can, anyone can have them. They're healthy. Yeah. (laughs) And I looked into it a bit after you'd mentioned, again, the Weight Watchers Heinz overlap. And it's disturbing because I don't think people are quite aware of, of how wide brands like 
Heinz Craft are that they own so many aspects here that they're creating the unhealthy food to get someone to go to Weight Watchers in the first place and then creating the healthy food brands that supposedly help them on the diet. And you've fully controlled the market here with the presentation of being able to help people. And it's just one of those things that like this can't be legal, right? This <laughs> the level of control and vertical integration here. One of those things that is constantly debated about whether or not it should be legal. But this is one that's like, no, people don't really discuss it. It's just it's just fine. It's all food. So it's all counts. Totally. Yeah. And then like the, just like the diet industry, like the amount of money they make off telling people to diet and selling products that like don't work without where like there's no reason why the change should. It's like they just add more processed food or they just like process it even further, basically to like offset the food that they've already processed. And then it's the only food that people can afford. They just like mass marketed and lowered their costs. Absolutely. And then the stuff that's the supposedly the healthiest and best for you is marked up to such a degree. And also there's an overlap of things like obviously there are some benefits to organic, but also there are things like non-GMO, which have consistently been proven GMO is not really an issue. But the marketing towards non-GMO has allowed price boosts and allowed control over a market sector that has made it so much harder for those that need healthy food the most because they aren't able to otherwise live a healthy lifestyle because they don't have as much money. And it's made it hardest for them to access. It's really incredible how well this horrific cycle is controlled. Normally we start with a positive, but this one was a really hard one to go with positive. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it is like a dark topic, but it feels like in some, it's so openly discussed that you would think it would be more lighthearted basically. But like, I remember one time, so like I had a joke about like having an eating disorder when I was younger. And at one point I was trying to shop like a late night set that never ended up happening. But the booker told me that like, I, I couldn't have my eating disorder joke in it because it was like too dark. And I was like, this is too dark. Like, I feel like people tell jokes about like death and like, I don't know, like cancer. Like, I feel like I should be able to tell this joke. But yeah, she said that it was like too like intense of a top, like for whatever reason, it like, it seems like it should be easier to talk about just because everyone eats food. Like everyone kind of understands it. And so many people have issues around it, but it is still like seen as so kind of like taboo to talk about. I completely agree with that because in the lead up to doing the research for this episode, I even had this moment where I texted Andrew. I was like, Hey, Andrew, we got to be really careful when we do this episode. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, which comes from a good place, but at the same time, like we'd say terrible, terrible things on this podcast. (laughs) And this was like one of those few moments where I was just like, we have to be really dancing on a razor's edge right now. And I think a part of the approach to that too, is that the world has just begun to treat fat phobia the way it should with an understanding of like, no, there's no reason we should be saying this is still an okay thing to make fun of. It's not. And because of that, we're also just starting to get into acceptable terminology and realizing how much is based on bias and based on stereotype. And because of that, we're all just still kind of learning the language too. But it is such a recent thing. But this is something that we have always dealt with. This has always been a part of society in some form, which will bring us into the history in a minute. That is strange that this is something that it should be one of the most universal things, but it's still one of the ones that is hard for people to just talk openly about. And weird too, that there's a level of embarrassment around it too. Like I've gained about 40 pounds through the pandemic. I was doing okay for a while after my father died. Then it was like, oh, okay, I I should have ice cream on hand at all times (laughs) was the general approach, which is a terrible way to deal. Look, I have two ways of, of dealing with stresses, either writing jokes or eating food. That so far has been like an incredibly unhealthy combination that I didn't really plan to change. But I found it interesting how much harder it was for me to diet during the pandemic. I hadn't had much issue before when I had gained weight from health issues that we talked about on past episodes. It's one of those things like, oh, okay, this is the issue now. Got to start eating healthier. Got to find a way to fix it. But during the pandemic, dieting has been so much harder for me. Just the idea of like, I can't do anything else. I want to eat. And it's been a weird challenge. No, totally. 
I mean, you know me and how I'm like super weird yeah. about my <laughs> my eating and my exercise and everything. I've had the holidays here. I hurt my wrist a while ago. I haven't been able to work out like I normally would. I have been at my family's house for the holidays and for my brother's wedding coming up. So I've been here for a few weeks now. So I don't have access to like the same gym equipment and like I'm eating with my family and I love my family, but man, they love bar food so much. <laughs> it's like even like they're going out, like they're ordering it in. I'm just like, this is just from the bar down the street. And they're like, they make the best Philly cheesesteaks. <laughs> I'm just like, damn, you're right. They do. And so like studying for this episode, like getting all the research and everything, like kept being just like, oh man, I am triggering myself just like doing this episode right now, but I'm going to have fun with it. Oh, am I going to yeah. have fun with it? The, the jokes are going to be flying fast and heavy, but they're all going to be directed at myself. No one else. I promise. <laughs> well, and with that too, let, let's get into some of the history because when I did something different on this one, we split the research on this. So I started to go look into some of the history of beauty standards because we wanted to see the history of dieting, but we also wanted to see how this ended up in the sector to begin with. So starting with the history of beauty standards. It's very strange because it's one of those things that we feel like is universal. This is what I find attractive, so this is what everybody finds attractive. But what was considered beautiful is very much geographic and time period based. And also what's generally discussed as beautiful are very Eurocentric ideals. We will discuss a little bit in the other ones, but because this is the standard that is so often clung to, we deal far more with the European standards. However, the first significant event that we see, that depiction of humans in art that we consider to be an ideal is in the Paleolithic era. And this is the first time humans left artwork behind. So the oldest depiction of a human being is the Venus of Holofales, which is between 35 and 40,000 years ago. And this was carved out of mammoth ivory found in Germany, and it's a depiction of a woman's figure. But the one you probably have actually seen is the carving of Venus of Willendorf. This is 24,000 to 22,000 BCE. If you look it up, you'll most likely go like, oh yeah, I've seen this one before. And this was found in Austria, and it's a depiction of a, a woman with large breasts, hips, and stomach, a crown of braids on her head with no face depicted. And it was concluded concluded that this was used for rituals around fertility, femininity, and eroticism, which is standard for all of the Venus carvings. Obviously, this predates Venus as myth, but the term came to be used for any depictions of this type. And there were some conclusions that this is an exaggerated figure of an ideal at the time or of fertility. There were also responses by some saying it's possible that this was just what someone looked like. <laughs> this could have been someone that was attractive and deemed attractive, and because of this, they were chosen to be depicted. I like how the prevailing idea was no one could ever have possibly looked like this, and they wanted to make art from it. This had to have been like people were trying to pray to a food god, because right. that's the only <laughs> way that this would exist. Like, oh, fuck yourself. Maybe right. there was just somebody who was bigger that everyone found really sexy at the time, and they right. made the first <laughs> statue for it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yes, that's very much possible. And also, you see when you start looking into this statue and into archaeology in general, which very much ties into the beauty standard here, how much of what what's going on in our lives currently affects how we decide on the meanings. Because a recent study instead concluded that it had to do with climate change. Amazingly, that happens big in our life, and suddenly this is incredibly relevant there. And what they had determined from this was they found different Venus statues and carvings across the world. And when they compared measurements on the statues... They found that the more full body figures were found further north in the glacial regions because this was during an ice age. And the farther from glaciers, the less pronounced proportions. Obviously, this was a time when fat, not, not a time, this is still true now, that fat converts to energy and to warmth. This is something that could have very easily helped with survival and would have helped with survival. But when I read about this 
this treated like these were two separate things. Like it's either about beauty or about survivability rather than what beauty has been throughout all of human history, which is that they converge. What we find beautiful is very often, same as every other animal species, what is evolutionarily beneficial to us. So yeah, it makes perfect sense that someone who had an evolutionary advantage by being larger in cold weather would also be seen as more beautiful. And for some reason, this isn't discussed like, yes, this makes perfect sense. It's got to be one or the other. Yeah. Do you guys know this guy, David Graeber? I do not. Tell me more. Okay. I discovered him newly and I'm a little bit in love with him, but he is dead. He's this <laughs> anthropologist who wrote The Dawn of Everything. And then he wrote like this book called Debt, but he's an anarchist and he like very well than Occupy Wall Street. Um, <laughs> anyway, his book, The Dawn of Everything, which is like an extremely pretentious title, basically seeks to like rewrite history and say that like everything we thought about like Neolithic times was wrong and, and it's supposed to find the root of inequality and he also talks about finding these like paintings of sort of like more voluptuous women and that like everyone interpreted them as fertility goddesses but that he actually thinks that they were supposed to be like sometimes like older women like it was supposed to be societies that just like really appreciated older women and that like images of like sagging skin in some of them earlier analysis tied back to fertility but was actually because they were older I can't exactly remember why he thought that but it was sort of the same exact line of thinking where it was like everyone just made this assumption looking at them like oh this must be them being like obsessed with fertility instead of actually trying to look for evidence as to why they were drawing these particular women right and that's really interesting i definitely want to look that up and it's like there's a lot that we're very good at in terms of archaeology and historical study and then there's a lot where it's like i get it we don't know anything you have a little bit of information you have to guess but there's incredible personal bias with your own life experience and it's presented the same way as whether or not you have a ton of evidence that led you to this conclusion step by step or a little bit of evidence and you had to kind of guess based on the pieces. It's just very funny that they saw like pictures of beautiful naked women that were bigger and they immediately just went, that's a metaphor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Imagine in 2000 years, someone finds a playboy and it was going to be like, this was clearly about reproduction only. Yeah, <laughs> that's everything a 21st century man wants from a woman is to get her pregnant. Definitely. The cheerleader costume is symbolic. Right. <laughs> well, and as we move forward, we start to be able to see the effect in different regions. We also get to see a bit of the evolution of it. So when we get to ancient Egypt here, so 1292 to 1069 BCE, the ideal woman is described then as a slender, narrow shoulders, high waist, symmetrical face. This was also when makeup was employed here. And what was typically done in the style here was heavy eyeliner, eyeshadow that was often green or blue, lips colored with orange, red, blue, black or magenta, hair would be braided in framing the face. And this was a beauty standard of the time. It was also a time where women were more sexually independent. Premarital sex and divorce initiated by women were perfectly acceptable. So with this, it was more of a focus and appreciation of beauty. Ancient Greece was interesting. We're going to look in like the 500 to 300 BCE era here. And there, the ideal form was considered plump, full-bodied with light skin. But Going back a couple hundred years here, attractiveness was suspect in women. If you go to writings of Hesiod, he described the first woman as Kalan Kakan or the beautiful evil thing. Some interpretations of this say she was beautiful because she was evil and evil because she was beautiful. That's just what it was. Obviously, if you look into Pandora, you see the same thing. She was the first woman and the cause of the downfall of man. Got Adam and Eve like, oh, there's a naked woman walking around and she fucked it up for everyone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this was very much standard and very often portrayed as even if the man did it, he did it because he was tempted by a woman to do it. No matter what, it was the woman's fault and her being beautiful was like, oh, I couldn't control myself because of how hot she was. But this also shows us that, again, the evolution of what was considered attractive. This was a time and place where the unibrow 
was considered incredibly attractive. So much so that if they didn't have one, they would often glue on animal hair to create a unibrow. The makeup was a factor as well, but it would mostly be subtle eyeshadow. And what was interesting and, and more unique in this time period is this is also when bisexuality was generally just assumed, again, in this region. And ancient Greece put a much higher standard on the male body, even describing the female body as a disfigured version of men's. So yeah, the ideal form was considered the athletic toned male body. And women were like, oh, well, okay, well, I guess here's the best version we can get that's not a dude, which was a very strange approach to it. Normally it's more separate here. It's like, okay, well, can we get it closer to this? And then when they went, no, it's like, okay, well, how about like closer to this? And then when they went, no, it's like, okay, well, how about like plump and round then? So it's just kind of like a different thing. I got no joke. I just find this very interesting. Yeah. There's no point where there's like listing the features that are found attractive and like, you know what, this is super healthy and probably good for everyone involved. No matter what, it's pressure that nobody can match and putting standards on things that are out of control. And it just gets worse as things develop. And obviously now in an era where there is so much more access to it, when you had a good joke a couple episodes ago that I've thought about a lot since then about how we weren't meant to see beautiful people so often where I hadn't considered it in those terms, but like the idea of like, yes, this used to be a rare event. This was something that not only special, but something that our brains weren't programmed to handle like this. Well, you're only supposed to ever know like 200 people in your life. Like uh, seeing a beautiful person, (laughs) I know I said this a few episodes ago, but seeing a beautiful person was supposed to be like a rarity. It was supposed to be like, that's the beautiful person you know. And like, that was just kind of their thing, their place in, in your society. There's the hot one. Now, like you keep seeing the hot ones just because they're filtered to you. And it really throws off your idea of the median, you know, quote unquote, beauty of the people around. Oh, yeah. We have absolutely no standard or understanding of where the lines are for how many people are what level of attractive, because what's being thrown at you isn't your own experience. It's all of the best from around the world as if it's normal. But around the world, too, again, this was one where just to reinforce how much this is not a what you deem to be beautiful is very much what you were raised to believe was beautiful during the Han Dynasty. Obviously, we're in Asia at the time. It was a slim waist, pale skin, large eyes and small feet. This was the beauty standard that was enforced going much farther forward to the Italian Renaissance, 1400 to 1700 CE. At this point, it was ample breasts, a rounded stomach, full hips and fair skin. And again, not entirely for physical reasons, but a wife's beauty was a reflection of her husband's status and a full form indicated enough wealth to afford more luxurious and large amounts of food. So again, I think we have this feeling that what we have is ingrained or biological because there's such a discussion of evolution and what we find beautiful. And yes, certainly there's a degree of that, but it's also very much what we grow up being told is beautiful. Example from the same time period, breasts were not considered as much of a sexual feature and different parts around the world at some point they've never been. And here they certainly weren't taboo. There were stories of noble women that had gowns specially made to reveal their favorite breast. This was a thing that was occasionally done. It was fantastic. It was very cool. It was a bit badass, (laughs) but also it was appropriate. It wasn't like, oh, this is a part that's supposed to be hidden all the time. They had an attractive breast they wanted to show off the same you would with any other feature. I just find it interesting that they're like, they had to choose a favorite when they went to the dressmaker. (laughs) Right. They could have gone for both, but like, no, this is the one. I felt like too, like you should probably go for both just to give a comparison, like maybe show both, but have an arrow pointing to one. So people can be like, oh, that is, that's clearly the good one. I I see why why you drew attention there. But again, an era where breasts weren't considered taboo, they also weren't considered to be part of the 
ideal or this extreme version of sexual identification that was just another body part that was there. Maybe you found it attractive, maybe you didn't. Then moving forward a bit too, or rather this period still includes the Elizabethan era, 1558 to 1603. And this is where makeup was again a heavy feature. And the face was made extremely pale with powder, lips, be rouge, eyebrows and hairline would be shaved to make the forehead larger. Again, the exact opposite of, of what's done today. Now, depending on your region, again, absolute opposite in the Far East. Here, tan is currently the thing. 20 years ago, it wasn't. Now, obviously, smaller foreheads are the thing. In fact, the pre-French Revolution, pale skin was so valued that some women painted on veins to try and make their skin look as though it was near translucent. Fake beauty marks that you see in stereotypes of in films of this period were actually a real thing, but it was done to show the contrast and the dark beauty mark, em- emphasizing the pale skin. And lips would be made shiny with grease and cheeks rouged. But then as you get into a much more conservative era in the Victorian period, you begin to see a beauty expectation regarding a contrast in form, which has gotten worse and worse since then, because you'd be full-figured with a cinched waist, which, as we all know, has just gotten scarier and scarier. But also, because society had become extremely reserved, any sort of lip or cheek color was considered scandalous. So clear skin had become the beauty standard. Women would just often pinch their cheeks to achieve a natural blush. And then after this, basically entering an era of TV and movies, you start to see beauty standards change much more quickly because we all have access to looks at, at everything. And before, as again, as, as one pointed out, if you're just seeing a few people, someone's got to come up with a really good idea to change fashion. Now you're getting exposed to fashion everywhere. So 1920s, the boyish figure with a flat chest, in fact, bras were made during this time to de-accentuate the chest. You have a downplayed waist, a short hairstyle. This was also one of the first times that a short hairstyle was used among women as a sign of attractiveness. It was almost always long before this. Golden age of Hollywood, the 30s to 50s, suddenly the hourglass figure became the standard with large breasts and a slim waist. 60s, absolutely reversed. The willowy of oh, and thin frame with long slender legs and a very adolescent looking build. 1980s, we have the supermodel era. Here was athletic, toned, but curvy and tall. 1990s was when I feel like it got one of the most dangerous periods in modern history. Obviously, it was much more dangerous before when you had corsets and foot binding. But heroin chic was the actual term used for this. Extremely thin, translucent skin, wavish and androgynous, and a form that you really couldn't get unless you were eating incredibly little. Or happened to be one of the people that had that natural build, which did exist, but everyone else trying to achieve it had to eat at dangerously small amounts of food. And then today you have what I think is one of the hardest to achieve in the postmodern the 2000s today, because it's that extreme juxtaposition. It's a flat stomach, but healthy skinny is the term used. Large breast and butts, but a thin waist and a thigh gap. Like if you were to draw this or just point out these features, you'd feel like, okay, but those things can't go together. All of those are contrasting and opposite. <laughs> you can't build a human like that. They'll just fall over. I'm just blown away by the notes because at first it was just like, okay, 24,000 years ago, the beauty standard was the carving of Venus of Willendorf. And then like, we didn't have an update till 1292 BCE. And then like trends would happen for like 300 years at a fucking time. And then now it's just like, okay, so then the 20s was this, the 30s was this, the 60s was this, followed by the 80s. Like you get like maybe 10 years of like the prevailing beauty standard before we completely change it. And like, imagine being like, I was just that thing. I was just that thing. And you're changing it now? How can you fucking change? I just did the impossible thing you wanted me to do over here. And now I've be this other fucking impossible thing now? That's bullshit. Right. Generations <laughs> used to live in a, this same beauty standard. A great grandmother all the way to the great great grand, <laughs> like all of them had the same beauty standard. And now each woman in every generation has to be a different thing twice in their lifetime? That's bullshit. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Like in the 90s, you had to get so thin you were too weak to lift weights. And 15 years later, now still unable to lift weights, suddenly you have to get rock hard abs. Like humans cannot do this. I did like that about eyebrows. Like <laughs> I feel like thick eyebrows were in for a while. And then someone on TikTok commented that I needed to trim my eyebrows. They're not even that thick, but to be honest, I did wax them after that. But I was like, oh, but I missed it. Like, I don't know. I, I thought I was supposed to, I was like trying to make my eyebrows thicker for the last like five years. And now it's in first again. Yeah, people need to stick to a trend. You're right. Especially with looks that are more malleable, the change happens so quickly where it's like, cool, this is the current face trend for these four days. And that's, that's it. Yeah. And speaking of how extreme this is, I do want to touch briefly on body modification because this is a thing that has always been a part of beauty. And there are some that we consider perfectly normal and ones that we consider outside of our norm, we typically consider horrendous. And some were, some were, were truly abusive and some were just different. There's also a distinction here between body modification and mutilation. The distinction there is typically just choice, whether or not this was made willingly by the participant. Because one of the oldest forms is head flattening. And this predates written history, but evidence is in the archaeological record because it's beauty that's dependent on bone. And this would be achieved by putting light and constant pressure on a newborn's skull. The head is, is being formed. This didn't seem to affect intelligence. This didn't seem to damage them. Probably wasn't even painful, although I'm sure it could be, but it rather could be done without pain because it could be done with a small board or wrapping it in tighter cloth. But seeing the bones, it's disturbing. I'm going to say that anytime that you're wrapping a small board <laughs> around an infant's head, there's some damage being done. <laughs> soft spot. Maybe like you go in the soft spot. Right. I mean, the plates are still coming together. They're still forming. So it's malleable, but it's more like you're doing this to reshape a baby. And that is a disturbing concept for a lot of reasons. But I think ultimately just that there cannot be consent, which makes it much more concerning. However, this was abundant. It's evident in all continents, except for Australia, Oceania area, but it was rare in Africa, south of the Sahara, and it was absent in South India. But this did happen all over the world. And seeing the skulls from this time period, it's amazing how dramatic the shift was. I have two little nieces and they have insanely long eyelashes. Like, I don't know where they got it from, but people <laughs> often like think they're wearing mascara or eyeliner, which I do find to be like a very disturbing thought to modify the baby's appearances, but also makes me think like, wow, that would probably be really cute. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have even longer eyelashes. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but I'm just saying. Like conceptually, this is wrong, but also like baby with really long eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you see babies wearing bows that are very clearly uncomfortable and I'm like, this is just their parents thinking they look cute, you know? Yeah, that's true. I felt bad about this one. I saw a baby wearing a, my mom's, my best friend t-shirt and it was cute until I realized like oh the mom put that on her more sad for the mom <laughs> like right like when you're my best friend but if I made you wear an Andrew's my best friend t-shirt <laughs> this is suddenly an uncomfortable relationship <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing for your birthday Andrew yeah <laughs> 
Uh, so let's move on to some of the other forms here of things that are considered more extreme. But again, these were done by choice. Dental removal was common, usually one or more incisors. This is, is still done in certain regions today. But in ancient Peru, Australian Aborigines, some groups in Africa, Melanesia and elsewhere, very common to just have certain teeth pulled, sharpening to a point or other pattern by chipping in Africa, by filing in ancient Mexico and Central America. Indonesia would actually file the surface with relief designs, which is pretty incredible. Southeast Asia, India, ancient Mexico and Ecuador encrusted their teeth with precious stones or metals. In India, there would be an insertion of a peg between the teeth. Blackening was less common, but in South India and certain groups in Myanmar and some Malaysian groups would do this as well. One that most of us have seen in things like National Geographic, where again, it's portrayed as if it's extreme, is the perforation of the lower lip, often inserted and extended with a disc or a decorative plug or ornamentation. And this was once widespread in Africa and among lowland South American native peoples, plus native to Northwest North American coast. Groups like the Mercy in Ethiopia would slowly increase the size of the insert stretching lip over time to fit much larger pieces. Piercing of the tongue was a common form of sacrifice. This was one that I, I mostly left out too when, when things were not done for beauty standards, but were done for other purposes. But because tongue piercing is something that's had a revival today, thought it was worth discussing that this was done, but this was done among the Aztec and Mayan culture where they drew a cord of thorn through the tongue. And again, this was sacrifice, not for beauty. Some Australian tribes drew blood from cuts during initiation rites. Also body modification, very common during initiation rites as a mark of making it to adulthood. That was the tongue piercing was the mark of making it to adulthood? That was a sacrifice at the time. It was the initiation rites where they just drew blood from the tongue from the Australian tribes. But yeah, there are still a lot practiced today in terms of initiation rites that are more extreme and not necessarily permanent modifications, but often physically challenging or damaging. One of the most extremes is there's a tribe that weaves a sleeve of leaves or fronds, and in between the weaves, they insert bullet ants, and then the arm has to be inserted into this sleeve for essentially a child making it to manhood. Bullet ants, for anyone who doesn't know, are called that because their sting supposedly feels like getting shot. And to see them put their arm in and then remove and the arm be completely black, this is one of the most extreme initiation rites, but it still is practice. Wen looks appropriately horrified at this. <laughs> That's a lot. That is, wow. It is. But interestingly, the initiation rites are one that we should discuss because I remember reading a while ago about a separate tribe where the initiation was relatively a simple process. You had to step over the back of three bulls. I might have the number wrong. It's been a while since I read this. You're just walking over the back of three bulls. Much easier than the bullet ants. However, if you fall, you will never be accepted into the society. You will always be lesser. I would 100% fall with that level of pressure. There's no way I'm surviving that. I would leave before I had to do the test. If you told me I had to walk from one end of the room to the other, and if I tripped, I would be ostracized <laughs> from society. Yeah, there's no way I'm not tripping. Just right. no, no obstacle, just like one end to the other when you can do it 20 feet. <laughs> I'd trip. I'd trip on step two. I don't even like society. I would trip on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I can't hang out with you guys. Oh, geez. So initiation rights do take a lot of forms and are significant in many cultures and throughout history have been, but the level of impact they have and the level of danger involved. There are some where people don't survive it. Getting into ones that are more common today, nose piercings, very common among South American indigenous peoples, Melanesians, inhabitants of African India, ear piercings, obviously incredibly widespread. One I did want to discuss because it's one of those things that objectively is one of the most disturbing. And I feel like highlights the fact that just because we do it, we accept it as normal practice. And that's circumcision. And this is, again, body mutilation of, for the most part, a newborn. And we're like, no, that one's cool. But that, you know, the lip disc thing, that's wrong. And it's very weird how what we consider, and this is a beauty standard. This is most people being circumcised now are not doing it because they're Jewish, because of tradition. They're doing it because it's 
a look that they want them to have in adulthood when they worry that, you know, being uncircumcised will be seen as less appealing later on. That's a lot of pressure to put on a baby. I do feel dickish for dunking on like the baby like head thing <laughs> and then just being like, oh, but the but the the dick thing that we do to babies, that's fine. That's completely, of course, you want it to look like your dad's. It makes sense. <laughs> like, I mean, conceptually, that's it's really disturbing. And it is for most people a beauty standard. And it's like, look, remarkably few people are going to see my penis anyway. Like way less than that I'm shooting for. So <laughs> it should not be that big a deal. And it was one of those where once you start getting into it, you're like, okay, so obviously the standards are just made up. There is absolutely no reason we should look at a circumcised or uncircumcised penis and think this is the hot one. <laughs> Sorry, just the idea. And while we are getting to some of the, the more extreme ones, we should talk about foot binding, which began in the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907 CE, and existed, though less frequently, up until the 20th century. And this would involve breaking the toes of the infant and binding the foot. Typically meant that they would be able to walk very little or not at all in adulthood. Foot would be bound and, and kept that way and wrapped, rebound and kept. So at the end, again, your foot is a few inches long. But parents would do this to their kids because it was considered so desirable to have those small feet that as an adult, they would have a better chance of finding a husband. So from the level of effect it had on them in the future, more disturbing than circumcision. But again, conceptually, we've got a lot of weird shit going on here. Scarification existed in much of Africa, as well as Australian Aborigines and the Maori of New Zealand. There's also something done occasionally, and this wasn't as much of a beauty standard, but things would be inserted under the skin, and this would often be totems for protection rights. Tattooing was present across the world as marks of beauty, status, rank, association, rites of passage, identification. It was basically everything. And until recently, the oldest known tattoo was found on Otzi. This dated from 3250 BCE, and his body was found embedded in glacial ice in the Alps and contained 61 tattoos. It was only recently, 2018, where two mummies from Egypt were discovered, dating between 3351 and 3017 BCE. And these contained the oldest figurative tattoos, derived from real objects rather than patterns or symbols. And I don't want to get too much into that because tattoos deserve their full episode. Next stretching by coiled brass rings. We've all seen again a National Geographic thing as if it's more disturbing than what we do, but was a very common practice in certain areas. And one more related to what Wen is going to get into with dieting was among certain African groups, girls were secluded at puberty and given special diets over several months to increase weight gain. Women in Middle Eastern harems would also deliberately gain weight for aesthetic purposes. And obviously the opposite is true. Extreme thinness became popular among the elite in Europe from at least the 16th century on. And this was achieved by caloric restrictions or corsets, some of which caused permanent deformations of the rib cage and internal organs, occasionally even resulting in death. And this continued today. That is the form that we most strive to achieve today, but we do it through dieting. So I guess that gets us into where did it go wrong, which is dieting. You could argue all of this has kind of been wrong in the first place. I agree with Ginny, like beauty standards as a thing are just like, who gives a shit really? But I mean, I know I've had some experience in this realm. Does anyone want to go first in talking about their own personal experiences? I mean, I'm cool diving in. Oh, well, I was reading through the, the history of dieting that you sent out, I do think it's interesting that I feel like I've tried basically all of these diets from like prehistoric times up until, t- I, or, I mean like the ancient not prehistoric times, but like, yeah, I feel like it's just like all these diets are just like kind of, there's one of like four total things you can do, but I've tried each of them like 16 times under different names with like different packaging. But I've been dieting since I was like a child. I'm 30 now. So probably it started when I was like 10. And like, it is wild how like the common sense advice changed. Like, I feel like people were into when I was like, a you know, trying to, maybe I just wasn't as good as at acquiring information, but people were not into like low carb at the time. It was like all low fat. It was like low fat yogurt and stuff in like the early 2000s. But now I do feel like 
every diet is basically like either vegan or like some version of Atkins, but I've just, I don't know. I just like feel like I just go back and forth between trying all of them. And like someone told me I should figure out which one makes me just like feel the best physically, but I never feel that good physically. So I don't know. But yeah, I started very young on like the low fat diet, which I did notice was here in this book. The guy who only had like milk or in this history, the guy who only ate like milk and vegetables. That was my first diet experience was very similar. I actually did Atkins when it was pretty brand new. So for me, it was during the years, as our audience has heard before, when I was bedridden, I gained a lot of weight. I couldn't move. You know, that's going to happen. Also, you're sad because you're bedridden. <laughs> you ate a lot of crappy food. So it was one of those things where once I started improving, I had a lot to work off and was still wasn't healthy enough to exercise. So the diet became very important. And this was when it was low carb was pretty brand new. And I started, it was very effective for me. But like I went to a store and asked and somebody said, what are carbs? Like there weren't low carb products at this time. This wasn't a thing that was known. It's obviously much easier now. And I've done various things at the moment. I'm doing Whole30, which I know when you mentioned you did, just because I've noticed that I have been feeling worse and I need to learn better eating habits. I would definitely like to lose weight, but I know I need to be eating healthier overall and I'm terrible at that. So something that's giving me a better chance at eating something balanced, eating things that are just good for me feels like a more important goal right now and hopefully, you know, lose weight in the process. So for me, I was like one of those people that could like, I could eat whatever I want and I don't gain (laughs) weight really. And then like I hit a hard stop at that around 27 (laughs) and I didn't realize it. Like I kept being like, oh man, the dryer keeps shrinking all my shirts. <laughs> when really what I actually did was gain like 50 pounds. But I was just like this damn dryer. Right. So I went through all that. And then like, I finally started like actually weighing myself again and started working out slowly, got down a little bit, but about two years ago or almost three years ago now, 2019, did the whole 30 thing. My wife suggested it and I shed like 17 pounds in like a month, which is probably not a healthy, like it kind of implies like how bad I was eating before that just like (laughs) eating like the same amount of food, but just not having it be terrible food, like made that much of a difference. At first I was like whole 30, I really believe in this. And then later I was like, oh, maybe I just was eating a bagel every single day for breakfast. with a lot of cream cheese. And when I cut that out, I just really lowered how many calories I was taking in. So yeah, I did that. I actually was somebody who, and this isn't a brag, I lost weight during the pandemic, but it was just because like, well, this is something I can control. So I put that all internally. It was like, I'll make my body something that I can control. So I would work out and I'd like count all my calories and I would eat like a very specific thing. And I'm not saying that that was better considering like I'm home for the holidays. I've gained like some weight over the past few months since my injury and it has just destroyed my mental health in some aspects that I like go back and forth on it a little bit to the point where my wife is just like stop telling your family that all you want is a salad when you're here (laughs) and they like to hang out over food like you need to be part of the family and not try to be like I can't be involved in any of this because it's not a bad thing they're just eating right (laughs) so I need to fix my relationship with food so I I fixed it for a little bit, then the pandemic made me go way too far in the other direction. And now I'm trying to go back to that middle ground. I had that during the pandemic of just feeling like I desperately wanted to control things. But I used to have a bad eating disorder when I was younger. And I don't have like probably like a textbook eating disorder right now, but I do feel like I just switched back and forth between different diets enough that it probably counts. But I did keto during the pandemic for part of it. Have you guys done that one? That one's insane. I mean, I think that there are people who do it in a much more healthy way than me, but I basically just like got 
only like keto ice cream <laughs> and like I would eat meat and like keto ice cream. That's mostly what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I still buy keto bread now. So yeah, I didn't lose a lot of weight, but I lost like a small amount of weight, which did kind of make me believe in keto. Cause I was like, okay, if I'm doing like this version of keto and it's working, I imagine people, but like you can't eat like fruit on keto, which I kind of think is like insane. I find that part crazy. And just for our listeners, just we're three comics. Uh, yeah. Do not listen. Like we're three comics going over history. Do not believe like that we have some kind of major insight into how your body works. We're all talking about our own mental health. Like me and Andrew are talking about Whole30 and how like, you know, it was successful for me. I'm, don't live that way. Right. Do not do not do Whole30 thinking that I endorsed it and I think that it's a good idea for you. In fact, whenever people ask me about it, I say it was very effective for me for those 30 days and it helped me fix my relationship with food. Do not ever go past that 30 days because it's unsustainable and it's it will get way into your head. So like just a disclaimer, we are comics. Do not make us your North star on how to treat your body. I don't know what you're talking about. I think everyone should eat keto ice cream for yeah. every meal. It's a lot of joy. Well, obviously listen to Jenny. Her book cures coronavirus, as we said earlier. <laughs> I think that's important to like how incredibly variable this is. And also when, cause like we do this recording every week, but I see you from the shoulders up and then all of a sudden you posted a picture where you were like ripped and I didn't know any of this was happening. And it was like, okay, but that wasn't dieting. You had to be working out so hard. <laughs> get in the shape that you did. Look, they were both things that I did to an unhealthy degree in the pandemic. And I do not (laughs) look like that at the moment. I was very happy with it at the time, but like I recently told my wife that I was going to try to like dial back on my eating once I get back to Chicago. And she was just like, okay, but just don't be a douchebag about it again. And I was like, you got it. And obviously, again, I did the other extreme where it was just, I am sad and stressed and I want food. And yeah, like completely overindulged. Also, I like apparently for a lot of people, they only need a certain amount of a thing to be satisfied by it. Like, oh, I want some ice cream. I will have a few bites of ice cream and then they no longer want ice cream. There's no point where I stop wanting ice cream, no matter how much ice cream I've eaten. (laughs) When your metal spoon meets the cardboard of the bottom of the carton is when you've had enough ice cream. (laughs) Right. I'm stopping because the ice cream is gone. I'm not stopping because I'm done. And that was very much an issue, too. So, yeah, a lot of this is about getting a healthier relationship with food. But when I know you have some history, too, on how dieting came to this. Right. And I will jump around because I don't want this to be a super duper long episode. So we'll start with the idea of dieting starts with the Greeks. Dietia was the word that we get diet from, and it referred to a whole way of living focused on self-control and eating in moderation. Hippocrates, a Greek physician who the Hippocratic Oath is named after, lived around 400 BC. He believed that people who were overweight suffered from unhealthy sleep, aches, pains, flatulence. I don't know why he included that on there. Cause like <laughs> eat right and you'll stop farting. Sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard a famous doctor say, but that's what doctory was back then. He also said it caused constipation and he recommended a strict diet, increase their exercise and vomiting. So like he also like was just like, you should get an eating disorder because that will be very helpful for you. <laughs> because the Greeks believed that if you had a perfect 
perfect body, that that means you also had a perfect mind. And that is something that I have spent time in the gym. And I know that is so far from the fucking truth. <laughs> the most yoked people I know are some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. And I love them dearly. <laughs> then a few centuries later, after Christ, when Christians became like a predominant part of society, they believed that the physical body was the enemy of the soul. So a bunch of saints actually would say that they would starve themselves and their hallucinations from being starved would result in hallucinations that they called holy anorexia. So messed up. That God would speak to them and through their hunger-induced hallucinations, give them messages from heaven. You could see how like the start of dieting is bad, right? And like, and this super caught on too, because they've also got the endorsement of like, okay, but the point is your soul. So don't be hot because that's working against your soul. You want to be in the worst physical shape possible, but also you can't eat. And it, it was just amazing how much you're like, just fuck up your body as much as you possibly can because that helps the soul. Exactly. Do not under any circumstances eat because if you eat, you're helping your body, the thing that you do sins with. <laughs> Why would you do that? And then around 600 AD, Pope Gregory defined gluttony, not just as eating too much, but also as eating wildly or eagerly or eating between meals. He said that picky eaters were also guilty of this deadly sin. So basically like the way I eat would horrify this guy. If you put a plate of chips in front of me at a restaurant, I'm going to get most of those chips before you even get fucking one because I am a monster. Yeah. <laughs> so St. Catherine of Siena took it to another extreme. When her parents wanted her to marry her sister's widower, she found that she could refuse food to get her own way. So she mainly found uh, dieting and like anorexia as a way to manipulate the people around her. And I'm like, that makes her a saint? And they're like, well, yeah, because she died from this. And it's like, that doesn't help. <laughs> that's very bad. They're like, well, she only ate communion. And it's like, that's awful. Why did you sanctify her? because she died from an eating disorder because she <laughs> ate your preferred crackers yeah. whilst dying? The Catholic Church is fucking wild, man. It was incredible. And then in 1087, we have our first liquid diet because William the Conqueror was embarrassed after falling off of his horse. So he took to his bed and he consumed nothing but alcohol during this time to lose weight. And when he finally did mount his horse again, the saddle caught his gut and he died of an infection that was caused by a rubber when this happened. His intestines essentially <laughs> burst and it didn't really help him with his weight either. They had to like shove him into his coffin because they couldn't just make a bigger one. Olden times were bad. It's like the other name for this show. <laughs> this was the conqueror, by the way. William the Conqueror, he was achieving things with this mindset at the time. I feel like in 1087, I feel like you could be absolutely anything at that time if you had like a mildly rich parent. This was the conqueror. <laughs> I feel like that might have been a lie that that's just something that his enemies told people later like he was so fat they couldn't even fit him in the coffin yeah. and that's being part of the historical record like this fat joke was just something that historians were like oh he, he was so big and it's just like they could build bigger coffins at the time you're not giving olden times people enough credit here that was probably like a mean-spirited joke based on his weight that he was sensitive about so in 1550 john hale advised people to eat simply because more die of gluttony than by the sword or the plague which has to be a fucking lie, right? Well, I mean, if you consider it like heart disease, so I, I don't know. I don't know if more people are dying from gluttony than from war and plague in the 1550s. Maybe he meant 
like one year and it was like their one peaceful year without a plague. Yeah. <laughs> In the past week, we've had, definitely had more people. So the first diet book came out in 1558 and is actually still in print. Luigi Cornaro was an extremely overweight Italian man who had an epiphany around 40 years old. And it's not going to be a good one. Tired of being overweight, feeling out of control of his body. He said he was unable to have sex. He <laughs> limited himself to 12 ounces of food a day and 14 ounces of wine, which is not a good fucking ratio. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not, but for the time period, I guess that's cutting down on wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he cut back severely on wine, but I don't think it should outdo your food intake. <laughs> like one glass of wine is like five ounces, I think. So it's actually not like that wild of an amount of wine. I mean, I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> three glasses of wine to like two wine glasses filled with food is like not like a good. I think that's a big thing. I feel like you need to just at least up the food to 15 ounces. What? Ounces of food are the same. Like an ounce of spinach is not the same as like an ounce of like meat. Oh, that's true. That's so much fucking spinach. Like if this guy was yeah. eating spinach, he was killing it. <laughs> so his book was The Art of Living Long, and he advised others to do the same. Cornaro lived to be almost a hundred years old, and toward the end of his life, he only ate egg yolks. That's keto. <laughs> <laughs> In 1614, Giacomo Castelvertro published The Fruits, Herbs, and Vegetables of Italy. It is also still in print. He criticized the English for eating too much meat and sugar and promoted the Italian way of eating fresh vegetables. This was the forerunner of today's popular Mediterranean diet. Which actually is fairly health supposedly. Yeah, like that was like the first one where it's not just like, okay, well, you only eat on Tuesdays and Thursdays and you can only eat communion wine. Yeah. Like Cornaro basically just did Gaston. He did exactly what Gaston did throughout Beauty and the Beast. It's he can drink a whole bunch. He can eat five dozen eggs. Can you repeat what the villain in Beauty and the Beast name is? Gaston. Was it wrong? Gaston, right? It's Gaston. All right. Next podcast, we're going to watch the entirety of Beauty and the Beast <laughs> and find out how this is pronounced. I'm waiting for this day and I'm going to know all the lyrics. I'm going to like yeah. do choreography <laughs> and you're going to hate it. You're going to see a side of me you've never seen before. <laughs> the second real diet book was released by George Cheyenne in 1730 and it was called the natural method of curing the diseases of the body he went on a diet of milk and vegetables but the moment he went back to regular foods he regained it so he became a lifelong vegetarian and wrote that the nervous diseases of man come from confined animals i cannot find a difference between feeding on human flesh or animal flesh an attitude that some people kind of still have today but also a very common problem for people that do an extreme diet and then go off of it and they find they go right back to the weight they were before and often unhealthy eating habits. And it's like, there might be a middle ground. See a dietitian, I feel like is the goal here. If you have a trouble, someone who can advise you personally. Yeah. For example, don't do Thomas's short recommendation that he wrote in the early 1700s that living near swamps make you fat. So you should move to the desert to lose weight. And it's just like, yeah, if you're in the desert, you're going to lose weight. I get that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's no food. There's no water. You're hot and tired all the time. Like, yeah, that's a good point. Everyone. But it's not the swamp that does it you're you're around food you're around living things that you can eat like he thought the climate did it can't prove that it didn't that, that was probably it i hope nobody takes any advice from this episode i'm so concerned don't take advice i'm trying to tell you it is bad i'm I, 
there's not been a single one of these where I've just been like right on the money, do that one. I even said that I did one of these diets and I'm not saying to do it. I'm not advocating for anyone to do anything unless it's something that they want to do personally for themselves for healthy reasons. No, like I want to be supportive. So he's like, oh, that's cool. I could see how this could work. And then I'm immediately paranoid. Like, no, but guys, remember, I'm an idiot. Like, don't. <laughs> this is all supposed to be our whole podcast about how all of this is bad. That's the concept of this show. <laughs> Except Lord Byron, our first celebrity dieter in the 1820s, he would gain weight very easily. So to remain thin, he invented the vinegar diet, which is drinking vinegar with water several <laughs> times a day to quote unquote flush off his fat. He also ate potatoes drenched in vinegar. There are records of women dying from drinking pints of vinegar to imitate their hero, Lord Byron, and shed weight just like him. Our first Instagram influencer. Here's something that bothers me, and I have no proof of this, but I am confident that Byron did not feel bad enough about women dying from this. Like, I'm sure that he was like, okay, but like they did it wrong. It was amazing. The level of celebrity that Byron had was ridiculous. And also just like, obviously a dick. And also the apple cider vinegar diet is a diet that still actually exists. And I have heard like women of like my mother's generation talk about doing it. So like, congrats, Lord Byron. This is your influence. (laughs) You're still killing people today. Good job. Hundreds of years later, this is an actual thing that women still do. The 19th century brought us the first low-carb diet book, the first diet diary, and the first scientific research on the metabolism. So in 1853, Balat Savarin wrote The Physiology of Taste or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy and argued that fat is not a disease, but a lamentable result of an inclination to which we give way. So he basically said, like, it's not a genetic thing, it's a eating thing. And to which it's like, it's both, you idiot. Right, now we have more or just constant evidence flooding in about how extremely genetic this is. So he argued that people who were overweight had to give up bread, flour-based foods, root vegetables like potatoes, sugar, starches, only eat fruits, vegetables, and lean meats. It was basically a forerunner for Atkins, South Beach, paleo, the caveman diet, and other of those modern low-carb regimens that people partake in today. Another fun one was in 1830, Sylvester Graham, the inventor of the Graham Cracker, wrote that to be overweight was to show that you had poor morals and were sexually promiscuous. And I'm like, rock the fuck on, Graham Cracker. You burn so many calories having sex. <laughs> well, but Graham was up there with Kellogg in terms of just like, all right, I'm making food, gotta make this about sex and masturbation and make it super creepy. Like he's inviting graham crackers so that you fuck less and i'm just like that's terrible that is terrible advice that's not what i'm using graham crackers for if you want to get the bed with a guy like him having graham crackers yeah. you know? <laughs> also like i love that i'm now using graham crackers to make pie crusts like fuck you graham i'm going in the exact opposite direction here and then after you eat that pie guess what you're gonna do <laughs> now that's probably for a while like i'll see if i get up later but i'm gonna be pretty tired after all that pie so in 1880s, more diet books were published, including On Corpulence by Dr. Watson Bradshaw, the first one to include a questionnaire for readers about their eating habits. People were also buying diet powders, which often had useless ingredients like 
lard in them or even dangerous ones like strychnine. One of the weirdest diet fads in the whole of history was Fletcherism. This was a craze in the United States and England. The year was 1903. And right around the big time, insurance companies were rating their policyholders based on their weight. And Horace Fletcher, an art dealer in San Francisco, was not able to qualify for insurance. So he invented his own weight loss plan. And he lost 40 pounds by chewing every mouthful 32 times or once for each tooth and then spitting out the rest. Later, he refined it to the Fletcher method to chewing until the food is completely liquid or at least 100 times. He took pride in the fact that he only pooped twice a month and his was no more offensive than a wet clay and had no more odor than a hot biscuit. I have a lot of problems with this. One, that he thinks this could possibly be healthy. Like, I can't imagine being like, I chew my food so well, I don't shit. I just piss <laughs> out my food now. Like, that is basically his pitch, which led to munching parties coming into fashion, which is not as fun as it sounds. It was just people who stood around and counted their jaw movements until they got to 100, <laughs> which sometimes took as long as five minutes. Oh my God. That, no. This is horrible. I feel like that would ruin everybody. There's nothing that tastes good after 100 chews. Also, imagine marshmallows. No. Here's a bad part, though. In 2011, Scientific American published a study done in China that proved that people eat 12% less if they chew their food more frequently, which means he kind of had a point. Like, he went really far. He went really far, but it apparently works. Well, yeah, but the idea of, like, you chew more, you eat slower, and also you have chewed your food better, it's easier to digest, all of that makes sense. I think what was so interesting about all of these diet trends was what the action was and what the conclusion to why it was effective was was. It was like, oh, I'm leading, eating less out here in the desert. So you know what it is? It's probably that swamps make you gain weight. And it's <laughs> it's incredible that, like how far they missed the mark on why these things were working. Exactly. So then you got Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters, who published Dieting and Health with Key to the Calories in 1918. This was the first book that focused on calories and a calorie deficit being a way to just diet and just eat whatever you want. Just keep it under this amount of calories. And there became a huge revolution towards the end of World War I, specifically when it involved feminism. The world was ready for a new kind of music, clothing, moral decorum. People were ignoring prohibition laws. They were meeting up at speakeasies. The world was changing and people were getting more independent. So this actually led to kind of a little bit of a, a little bit of touch and go. Like it's a good thing that happened, but it also led to like people being like, and now we want boyish looks and extreme dieting. Like it became like a sign of progress if you had less of a feminine body type. So therefore you had to be slim, boyish. It was uh, even said in the art of beauty, slim and boyish is sexier than womanly. Which is just... <laughs> It's amazing that so much good came out of this, but I mean, I get it at the time when you're fighting for femininity and for women's rights, the idea of like, look, they're just being dicks about this. If we look more like them, maybe they'll be cool. Like I, <laughs> I get the need for do what you have to, but yes, it obviously led to a lot of extremes. Exactly. And then the 1920s, cigarette companies were selling cigarettes as health aids that benefited digestion and most importantly, helped you stay slim. I mean, technically. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but like at what cost? Cost, man. You're right. Like, it's amazing how thin you are when you have cancer. Like, yeah, it works. One of the most famous ad campaigns was a Lucky Strike campaign with the slogan, reach for a Lucky instead of a sweet. Great uh, line. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was that was how they marketed cigarettes of just like, just smoke instead of eating. Like, that was the diet, the smoking diet. <laughs> 
And they had doctors like testifying for this, right? Yes. They also had like cigarette brands that were like, this is the brand smoked most often by doctors. Then you have the Inuit diet, which was introduced by the Swede. And I'm very sorry if I mispronounce this. Vil Jalmer Stefansson. He lived in the Arctic and he preached that Eskimos ate high calorie diets of whale blubber, caribou and raw fish, along with very little fruits or vegetables. And yet they remained healthy and slim. So his meat diet was very similar to the caveman and paleo fads that would come later. Also, one massively missed here is the extreme amount of calories burned trying to stay warm in the Arctic. Like if you're going to travel there, you have like food like pelican, you know, made specifically to try and put as much fat into your body as possible. Also, again, like things like cavemen and paleo also proven to not be how cavemen ate. Most of this is just people kind of guessing at things and picking the name that they think is coolest. Right. But then don't worry. We have a moment of like good idea, bad reasoning for your ideas, because in (laughs) 1926, the American Medical Association doctors spoke out against the dangerous ideas of diets and weight cures and the female regimens that people were putting themselves every day in order to appear a certain way. The reason why, as one doctor put it, is it's preposterous. Is there no humbug too raw? Women should not follow beauty ideals. It endangers motherhood. And it's just like, you're so close to getting it, man. <laughs> you're so close. It's like, yeah, you said the right thing, but your, your reasoning is terrible. And like, this continues on. 1929, Dr. Morris Fishbane was also someone who said that, you know, women shouldn't diet. But the reason why is because malnourished women are deeply attractive and they threaten male and female norms, encouraging the rise of lesbianism. (laughs) Female fat is necessary for society's survival. This nonsense is a result of feminism. You know what I think is so stupid when guys, I feel like maybe they don't do this anymore, but more like five years ago, guys would be like, oh, I'm not into her. She's like too skinny. And then they would think that that was like them being progressive. Right. <laughs> You're still just like insulting her body. Right. <laughs> You're right, though, because I remember guys saying that with like clearly waiting for like someone to hand them their medal. I got to say, I hate the idea of just like you can't diet. You'll become a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll skip around a little bit more. The Hollywood grapefruit diet came to prominence in the 30s. This one preached uh, eating half a grapefruit, an egg, and one Melba toast for breakfast, six slices of cucumber for lunch, and a half grapefruit, two eggs, lettuce, and one tomato slice for dinner. Not cool. Yeah. In 1948, Esther Manns created a support group called Tops for takeoff pounds sensibly. The original group met once a week in Milwaukee. It did not follow a diet plan, but rather just discuss their mutual struggles with weight. That is actually good. Like an actual like support group. That sounds like a good one, right? Yeah. This is like, might be our first good one. People just like, oh, this is hard. And we're like being like, yeah, I know. That's it. That's the one good thing we have so far in this episode. Mead Johnson introduced Metricol, a liquid shake advertised as neither drug nor food. You drank <laughs> one can of Metricol instead of eating a regular meal. Similar meal replacement products quickly appeared. Ball Call by Sears Roebuck, Quota by Quaker Oats, Seago by Pet milk. By 1965, Seago and Metricol were a $450 million market. Wait, are those the only two options? Drug or food? It's a drink. We already have drinks. Yes. (laughs) Everyone's familiar with the concept of drink. 
incredible. It's absolutely wild. And in 1956, the government changed their guidelines for healthy diets, recommending that you eat from the following four food groups, vegetables and fruits, milk, dairy, meat, and breads slash cereal. They removed butter as a food group, which it apparently was at the time. And then shortly after this, or like with 30 years after this, they then said <laughs> that ketchup counted as a vegetable, so they didn't have to supply vegetables to school meals. Like the government was incredible with when they tried to like promote healthy eating, they were so wrong for so long. But I feel like they knew, like they weren't wrong. They just were cheap and like didn't want to piss off the right lobbies. Yeah. So I do remember when ketchup was a vegetable. That was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> like when they had like the food pyramid that was recommending like what, 11 servings a day of carbs. Was it up to 11? Yeah, I do remember that. 11 servings a day. <laughs> I can't even like I, I love carbs. Most of my food, I feel like is carbs. And I would struggle with that. Amazing. Quickly jumping around in 1962, Weight Watchers was formed. In 1969, low calorie foods became available and kept growing. Coca-Cola sweetened tab with saccharin instead of cyclamate after the FDA banned it. In 1978, the FDA tried to ban saccharin off the market as a carcinogen, but instead put warning labels on products containing it. So like they were like, you could still put it in food, but just mention that it's poison, which is always fun. And now you can still use it but the warning labels are gone, right? Like saccharin is still in use today, but you don't see a warning label anymore. Exactly. In 1972, Roger Atkins released the Atkins diet. Then in 1988, there was a great moment in diets are bullshit history where Oprah Winfrey had a wagon pulled out containing 67 pounds of fat and said that that's how much she lost on her liquid protein fat. (laughs) She was wearing size 10 jeans and then years later admitted she did not fit in them the following week when she returned to eat actual food because that's what crash dieting does. And then in 1994, the FDA required that all packaged foods must provide labels that provide nutritional information. In 1994, the American Psychiatric Association officially recognized eating disorders as a thing. Incredible that it took that long for both, for the packaged foods and like, yes, clearly this is a real thing. Exactly. Digital fitness began popping up in the 2000s with websites, wearable electronics, measuring how much you were eating and how much you were moving every single day. In 2014, the FDA passed a rule that any chain operating 20 or more food establishments have to provide nutritional information on all of their menus. Some research also indicates that Americans may be giving up actually on dieting because in 1991, 31% of adults were dieting, but in 2013, it was down to 20%. Only 23% of Americans say they believe that a certain weight would make them more attractive, which is is very good to hear. Those are better numbers, right? Yes. <laughs> and then a few experts in the medical community are questioning whether you should put overweight patients on a diet when the long-term success rates of them are only 5%. As Dr. Ashley Skinner of the University of North Carolina wrote, research assumes thin people are healthy, but if someone loses weight, they will always need fewer calories and more exercise. Who knows what we are doing to our metabolisms? That's a really good point. And so, I mean, it took so long, but in incredible to see that there's some understanding here that it's not just you're thin and you're healthy. Like you can easily be making things worse here in the process. Right. So that is the history of beauty standards and dieting. When you killed, this was like a solid 10 pages of research here that you got through 
very well. I jumped as fast as I could because I know we're running a little long. So let's get into In Their Defense, where each of us has to take a moment to try to defend the thing we have been dunking on for an entire podcast episode. Jenny, would you like to take first crack at this? Okay, I will say that like, I think I struggled to like say that we shouldn't have beauty standards and people should, or well, like in my head, I don't think it's a contradiction, but it's like people should like whatever body type people want, they should have everything is beautiful. And then like, or, or that beauty doesn't matter rather. And then also that I think it's bad that food companies make like processed food that makes people sick, that people don't know kind of what the ingredients are in it. And I feel like sometimes when I try to criticize like these processed food companies, it comes out as like fat phobic, but it's really not that I think that individual people should have to behave in a certain way, nor that I think that it should like the owner should be on individual people to like extensively research like products they buy. Like in many ways, that's like why we have government. So I guess like what I would say in the defense of dieting is that I think a lot of it is really misguided, but I think part of it is a way to try to fight back against these really corrupt food companies that are feeding people stuff that they don't know what's in it. And I think that some of the efforts are to empower people with more information about what they're eating when they otherwise wouldn't have that information. That said, I think that that's like a very small percentage of the diet industry. And I think that for the most part, it's pretty like financially exploitative and doesn't work. But I do think that what some of them are trying to solve for is like another corrupt system that's basically like poisoning people with processed food. Incredibly well said. Yeah. (laughs) When, what have you got? So I am not advocating anyone to do anything with their bodies that they do not feel is in their own best interest or be a detriment to their mental or physical health in any way, shape or form. I can only speak for myself. And for me, when I did that whole 30 and I kind of fixed my relationship with food, it helped because I no longer crave fast food for almost every meal, which I'll admit that I was kind of doing there for a little, like it was not a mystery afterwards. Like, how did I gain 50 pounds in such a short amount of time? Like, I was like, oh, all the evidence is right here. So it did help me change my relationship with food doing that whole 30 and I did go way too hard later in the pandemic searching for a way to control what I was doing. However, in that middle ground where I was watching what I ate based purely for my own health and extending my lifespan and for me to have better mental health by looking in the mirror and being like, okay, I actually like recognize myself when I look at myself again. Like those were things that were important to me and things that I have achieved, but also things that can have a dark side to them really easily if you do not frequently check in on how you're feeling and how you're doing mentally and what you're doing to your body. So that is my defense, but also with a caveat of only do the things that are right for you and things are going to be healthy and mentally sustainable. No, I think that's very important and a great way to look at it. My defense is twofold. The first aspect here that I think is really important is that I know a lot of people that are just so fucking stupid and the only way they have to make money is to sell skinny tea on Instagram. (laughs) That's it. Without that, I do not know how they would survive. If they couldn't find people slightly dumber than they are to buy skinny tea. They would have no chance in this world. And I think it's important that we give incredibly dumb people like that options to poison the community with false statements about a diet that very obviously doesn't work. My second argument is that we are so close to destroying the planet and all of the food on it. It would be great if we knew how to survive on significantly less food in like 
10 years when we're all forced to roam the country with bands of oil barons, you know, attempting to steal the few remaining drops. If you can survive on like a few leaves, you're going to have a much better chance than, you know, a guy like me who is still hoping somehow a freezer has kept the last ice cream for 10 years. I'm lasting like a week, maybe. The people that know how to do extreme diets are going to have the best chance of surviving in the hellscape we're building as our future reality. You know, I thought about that a lot at the beginning of the pandemic when they were like, get three weeks worth of food. And I was like, I've been on some really extreme diets where I could make do with three weeks. Yeah. Like I had like <laughs> 10 cans of fish in my house and I was like, I can make this work for three weeks. <laughs> I'm ready for it if the food fell out. If it happens, I know what to do. Yeah. I'm writing the Twilight Zone episode where Andrew can't get into that freezer after the nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> the I finally have time one. Yeah. <laughs> that's the right. Well, that's what I have in their defense. <laughs> I think that wraps it up. Yeah. Well, we've got a full history on beauty standards and dieting, where it went wrong, which was basically all of it, as well as our personal experience. And obviously in their defense, which guys I hope was clear, was incredibly sarcastic. Do not buy skinny tea or starve yourself in case of an apocalypse. Jeannie Hogan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Absolutely. And guys, you need to go keep up with Ginny's social media so you can see when her show is coming out. But so far, it is on February 26th at Westside Comedy Club. You also have I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans out in May, which you all should absolutely buy. Ginny, thank you for being here. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes. and helps us keep the show going. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. 